podcast dedicated to reading and ranking every single mystery novel written by the Queen of Crime, Dame Agatha Christie. I'm Kemper Donovan. I'm Catherine Broback. And this week we are covering a short story, The Jewel Robbery at the Grand Metropolitan. And this is another early Christie short story, another one of her Poirots that was published in the sketch originally on March 14th, 1923. The title uh, at that point was The Curious Disappearance of the Opalson Pearls, which is a perfect segue into the victim of this story, who is in fact Mrs. Opalson, a wealthy, rather pudgy woman. There, um, uh, slight tangent, there are a lot of references made to her appearance in the story. I, I did yeah, notice that. It's, it's really kind of offensive. It's like dwelled on in a way that made me uncomfortable. Frankly. It's dwelled on in a way that made me uncomfortable, but I have a little bit of a theory. Some say that Agatha Christie's first husband, Archie Christie, one of the reasons that their marriage started going south is that he thought she lost her figure after she had given birth to Rosalind, that she never really went back to the sprite-like more elfin, younger woman that she was before she gave birth. Oh, really? Yeah, and then that was perhaps one of the reasons why they started having issues, one among many. So maybe she was overly sensitive about this, and this was her way of, of kind of projecting that anxiety into some of her writing. I mean, that that makes sense, but I mean, it comes up repeatedly. Let's be clear, it's, it's not as short as some of the other short stories that we've read, but it is short in content. Yeah. And it is long on addressing Mrs. Opelson's weight issues. Yeah, when it comes to page length, absolutely, this is not the shortest one that we've read, but it feels like the shortest one. Um, because there's yeah. there's there's just not much here, but it's 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 a no. neat little puzzle. So let's continue. The victim is Mrs. Opelson, who is a wealthy woman in possession of a very fine pearl necklace, and that necklace has been stolen. We kind of open on Poirot and Hastings essentially having an evening out and running into Mrs. Opelson and her wealthy husband. And, you know, they're talking about this well, they're, they're on they're on vacay. They are. They're in Brighton on vacation at the, at the Grand Metropolitan Hotel. So this is another Christie in which it's not a murder mystery. It's a robbery mystery. And we have a couple suspects. Right. So the first and probably most obvious in some way suspect is Mr. Opelson, her husband, who we find out. Never he, trust the husband. Never trust the husband. And um, we find out he's insured the necklace. And there seems to be a pretty big suggestion that he's suffered a downturn in fortune because he's very much assured that the necklace retains its value <laughs> so that he doesn't have to worry about the cost that he paid for it. So that's an obvious suspect, right? Yeah, he's got a motive. And I think that was a motive for the jewel theft in The Adventure of the Western Star, which was the first short story that we did. It ended up being that it was stolen for the insurance by its owner, right? So the second suspect is right. Celestine, Mrs. Olbison's French maid, who stayed in the room with the pearls and in whose bed the pearls, or at least a pearl necklace resembling the pearl necklace uh, that had been stolen, was subsequently found. So she is a major suspect because she spent the most unsupervised time with the pearls on the evening during which they were stolen. She is the most obvious suspect, so mm -hmm. that in a Christie novel, especially in a Christie short story, the super obvious suspect probably isn't going to end up being the one who did it, but sometimes they are, because then that in of itself is not obvious. 
Um, so as she's a suspect. Right. On. There is also a chambermaid who I don't believe is ever given a name. She's only referred to as the chambermaid, who was also in the room with Celestine. And she gets very, very up in arms about being the responsible party. She demands that she be searched, and it couldn't be her. And she kind of has poor grammar <laughs> and is just like feisty with the investigating authorities. There's her. So she. She's, she, so she's, there's her. she's a person. And then the valet, or valet, as, as we would say <laughs> in America. We've, um, we've all watched who, Downton Abbey. It's the valet. <laughs> Not all of us have watched Downton Abbey. You barely watched it. <laughs> the valet who worked in Mr. Ovalson's room across the hall. In the episode, it's the chauffeur. Right. But in the story, it's the valet. There's a drawing of the room, and so um, <laughs> Celestine lives in the room that is adjacent to Mrs. Opelson, and then Mr. Opelson apparently has his own personal room that's across the hall. Got it. Okay, so let's just take a look at the world as it seems to be. As we mentioned, Celestine is the obvious suspect here. We have a closed room mystery, right? There were mm-hmm. girls put into a box, put into a drawer, inside of a room, a room that we have a diagram of in this short, short story. And there was a maid, Celestine, who was sitting in the room all night, who left the room on only two occasions to go into the adjoining room for sewing materials. And on those occasions, the chambermaid was in the room, unsupervised by Celestine. But otherwise, Celestine was the one who was in the room for long periods of time with absolutely no supervision. And also the adjacent room is literally a bit take away from where they were seated. So Exactly. So I mean, it's like se- there's seconds no, there's, away. Seconds away. Correct. There's no way that she could be out of the room for more than a few seconds, even if she couldn't find her scissors, you know? Right. Like, and then, of course, the further development is that Celestine's possessions are searched and a necklace that seems to be the pearl necklace in question is found in her mattress spring. So... It seems to be that Celestine did it. That's the easy answer. But that, of course, is not what actually happened. And we do have a couple of clues here. Right. I mean, obviously, there was not enough time to get the pearls out of a locked jewelry box and out of this hotel room. There wasn't enough or time. Was there? I mean, unless... <laughs> or it- was there? <laughs> Well, I guess there was enough time if Celestine did it. Yeah, I suppose so, except that is not what happened. (laughs) And so our first clue is that we get this repeatedly mentioned, that there is a bolted door to the adjacent room, not the maid's quarters, but another hotel room. And Poirot checks it. I think Hastings checks it. The police check it. They go to the other room and check it. It comes up just repeatedly that they are checking the bolt to this door. So, I mean, I think our deduction here can be if a lock is being checked that many times in a short story, there's probably a reason to be suspicious. Also, hey, guess what would be a really easy way to pass off a jewelry box if you happen to, I don't know, let's say have a partner on the other side who could unbolt the door. Yeah. It reminded me a little bit of the, of the Mysterious Affair at Styles when there was a lot of funny business going on with the bolting of the doors on either side. There were, you know, right. three, three out of sure. four sides mm-hmm. of 
Mrs. Inglethorpe's bedroom had doors on them, and there was all sorts of stuff going on, especially in the ones that communicated with other bedrooms. And, and it did end up being significant to unraveling all of the clues. So, so there's that. And, yeah, I mean, um, if you if you if you have a locked room mystery, the locks on the doors, the locks to the room matter. are important. Are important. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's a fleeting reference to the outline of a rectangle in the dust of this neighboring room. And I definitely zeroed in on that. I realized that that must be significant. The deduction there is that the room has been poorly maintained. It's dusty. No one's been in it recently, except obviously someone must have been in it recently and disturbed the dust on that table nearest Mm -hmm. to the door that leads into the Opalson's room. What else is rectangular shaped and would fit on a table quite easily? Perhaps a jewelry box. Um, You don't say. (laughs) So our deduction here is that perhaps somehow that jewelry box made its way from the Opalson's room into this adjoining room. Right. And so then on top of it, because apparently a lot of this story boils down to dust on things, um, Poirot has some white powder on his jacket sleeve, and he tells Hastings that he believes it to be French chalk. I was unfamiliar with. (laughs) You know, as as opposed to Belgian chalk. And I was unaware what French chalk was, but apparently it is used by cabinet makers to make make drawers pull out more smoothly. So presumably, since this was on the drawer that contained the jewelry box, it meant that somebody wanted that drawer to like go in and out, like at a high speed. And that meant that the theft was prepped for. And that meant that somebody had to have access to the room and the drawer. And so far as they could chalk it. In other words, it had to be either one of the Opalsons, right? Or it had to be one of the members of the help. So, I mean, this does not eliminate Celestine, the French maid, but it also could involve the chambermaid, who also had access to the room and presumably would have access to the French chalk to make the drawer pull out more smoothly. Right. Yeah, it's one of these uh, um, mystery puzzles where the clues aren't really winnowing down the suspects. You just kind of have to acquire the clues to get at a working theory of what could have happened and then apply it and see if it works, but we're not really engaging in a process of elimination here. Final clue is just the timing of this whole thing. Again, it's a locked room mystery. The pearls somehow got out of the locked room. Someone's lying. It could be Celestine. It could be the chambermaid. It could be the Opalsons. Maybe they really did Mm -hmm. just steal it themselves and go for the insurance. But the chambermaid here is protesting quite a bit, and perhaps we should be a little bit suspicious of her. She is pinning the, trying to pin the blame on the foreigner, the French maid. She keeps on saying, search me, I'm innocent. So we don't get as good of a sense of this in the story as we do in the Suchet adaptation, which we'll talk about in a moment. But Celestine herself just seems to be a somewhat more believable and upstanding person or at least to be presented that way in the episode. It's, right. I, I don't know if you could really say that that's the same in the story. But again, I think the fact that Celestine is such the obvious boring choice, it also just puts some extra suspicion on, on the chambermaid, who, if she did do it, had to do it in some sort of a clever way in the few seconds, literally seconds, that she had unsupervised in the room when Celestine was going to get sewing materials in the other room. So that means that the only way the chambermaid could have done it was if she threw the box with the pearls in it out of a window, which 
doesn't make any sense, or through a door, such as that door into the room next door. Right. And so we're only told through Hastings about what Poirot's actually done. He figured out that the crime was probably committed by the chambermaid because of the timing issue and that she had to have an accomplice obviously in the next room because they had to unbolt the door and so he figured out that it was the valet who was in the adjacent room and he used this fake I guess presumably plasticized card to get their fingerprints which he took to Inspector Jap who then determined that they were in fact well known jewel thieves they were arrested the necklace was returned the end. The end. I will say, I think that this was a pleasing little Christy detail. The scenario here is Poirot has this little white card, right, that he's mm-hmm. giving to people to hold. And if we make our everyday assumptions, we assume that the significant thing about this card is the card. But the significant right. thing about the scenario is that he's making them touch the card. And, right. And that's classic Christy. It's clever. And once you realize what she did or what Poirot did through her, you're like, oh, okay, that makes sense. But it's hard to train yourself to not make those assumptions and to not be tricked and to not have to be told what happened after the fact, which is why these reckonings are pleasing because they're not super obvious. And even in what is essentially a logic puzzle here, you have this pleasing little detail. And it's just, it's, 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 remarkably dumb to not think of that because like if you watch for example a television episode and you see let's say you're watching an episode of SVU and you see the detective hand a suspect a glass you're trained enough to be like, oh, but we're trained. We're getting but I would fingerprints argue and DNA. Sure, I would argue that we're trained when it's a glass, right. but not a card. A card is no, because no, when no, someone's no. looking at a card, the assumption is, oh, this card is significant because things are written on cards or people give right. cards to each other. Mm-hmm. It's very clever to make it a card that has stickiness to it, so that it has fingerprints rather than just a glass or something like that. Right. You know? No, I completely agree. I completely agree, but I, I just think, I think it says something that we can read this story that was published in 1923 and be a little bit surprised. Yeah, by his methodology. But, uh-huh, you know? yeah. Yeah, that's true. By the procedural uh, element of it. And, and it is a neat little logic puzzle. I mean, it just hinges on having to get your brain over the hump that the timing does not actually involve two discrete 15-second intervals because the box could have obviously gone out of the room in between those two intervals. It's a math problem. It's a logic problem. Like You could have this problem in a fourth grade math class, and the biggest critique, I think, of the story is that there's not much built out from that. Its logic puzzle roots are very obvious, and she did not dress them up as well as she sometimes does, and that's because it's just a short story, and I guess she didn't want to bother. Well, and there's like a there's a lot of convenience involved in it too. I mean, how the chambermaid knew that Celestine was going to leave the room twice is um, 
nonsensical. Yeah, it makes no sense. <laughs> makes no sense. It makes no sense. So yeah. that, I mean, I think is kind of a fatal flaw in this. Um, yeah, I mean, this is where, the, you know, her reputation for creating cardboard characters that don't really function as people, but that are just placeholders in a logic puzzle. This is one that is, is hewing more closely to that model. But she doesn't always. It's not the most robust human drama. Let's put it that way. <laughs> <laughs> right. And we don't even really find out that much about the pearl necklace. The um, adaptation, and we can just move into that. Let's go. Let's like, do Let's it. be honest. The adaptation fleshed out the Opalsons. I feel like they kept the seed of the Opalsons maybe being a slightly comedic couple that you you could mock. There's a mocking tone about the I, Opalsons in the story, she, and they seem mockable in the episode as well. Well, except I would say that they actually tried to balance it out at some level because Mrs. Opalson is actually not that mockable in the episode. True, whereas it's him. It's Mr. Him. Opal, yeah. Mr. Opalson, there's an entire subplot in the episode that Poirot is really angry that they've used him as publicity for their play. Right. Because Mr. Opalson is a theater producer. And, and, and Mrs. Opalson is the lead in a play about the uh, theft of uh, famous pearls, set of pearls before pearls before swine. <laughs> Here he comes. Mr. Poirot, have you been challenged to solve the place, sir? This I do not believe. Hastings, Mr. Poirot, how many eggs do Excuse me. It is an outrage, Hastings, to use our cube Poirot for the publicity of this play. Absolutely. It's beginning. I have to say in general, and we won't dwell too much on this because we've said it before, but I was impressed anew by how well those who, I think it was Anthony Horowitz who wrote this one, and he write, he wrote a lot of yeah. them, by how well they fleshed it out because there was not a lot in there, and they just add jab, they add lemon, they add a lot of fun. There's this well, ridiculous I mean, runner of jab- Lucky Len, which was absurd but in the right, but but funny in the right way. Like They made a full episode out of something that was really not. Well, we should, Lucky Lucky Lum, Lucky Lum is a um, newspaper contrivance, like a Where's Waldo, yeah. except with a real identifiable person, and that person happens to have a Poirotian mustache. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And so he just keeps getting identified as this newspaper contrivance, and people just then want money from him for their reward. Stop. You are Lucky Len of the Daily Echo, and I claim my ten guineas. No, madam, I am not Len, and therefore for you, I am not lucky. Excuse me. So that actually underscores Poirot's ire, I guess, in this. Yeah. But he gets Mr. Opelson arrested. Yeah. <laughs> and he does it deliberately. Yeah. It's a little bit like <laughs> that is the one plot development in the adaptation where I was just like, uh. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, he gets was him arre- there a, pr- was well, there a purpose he, he for claims, this? Yes, he does. He claims to get him arrested because he wants the jewel thieves to think that the necklace was always fake. So he gets him arrested with right. the, the idea being that Mr. Opelson, this was fraud. insurance fraud and the pearls were always fake, which is then an inducement for the thieves to go to the stage where the play is produced after hours and check up on the pearls to make sure that they're in fact real, which is when he much more dramatically and stereotypically does his reckoning with, with all of the characters there on the abandoned stage. Not the first dark stage 
on which Poirot has a reckoning and it won't be the last either. No, no. But I also have to be honest, at least in the television adaptation, you know that Poirot would be secretly happy that he was being mentioned in the press. Oh, yeah. He's in attention hound. But we should also talk about the fact that the setup to the episode is much, much better than it is in the story because it's that, uh, it's a typical, this obviously happens in a lot of these episodes that Poirot is overworked and ailing in some way and needs to take a breather. So I guess it's Captain Hastings' job to chaperone him to resort towns. (laughs) Yeah, and there's this tension that he's supposed to be taking a break the whole time, and he then he gets embroiled in this mystery. Take a break. You know I have to get my plan through Congress. Play with us for the summer. Let's go upstairs. So it becomes like a, I believe the term is a busman's holiday. And, yes. And Miss Lemon is very angry at Captain Hastings when she finds out that he's allowed Borrow to get oh. embroiled. Miss Lemon in this has a fabulous montage where, like, I just wish we could have dialogue, which they don't give us. I would watch and or read if someone wrote a series of books or creative series for television that was mysteries, but from Miss Lemon's point of view. Like, shouldn't like, she have her own show? Mass- and it could just be called, like, oh Lemon. God. And it would be all lemon-colored, oh and she would just be, like, grinning oh. wickedly in the sort of, like, cover for it. Yeah, and she just hones her tarot card craft, takes care of her cats, works on her fabulous eyebrows, <laughs> and interviews shady characters in London in bars. bars. <laughs> yeah. Over a pint. Like, in the episode, she finds out that the, the play is transferring to America, and she figures out that, obviously, the necklace is being stored in some of the props that are being transferred to America because she finds out, I guess through her shady contacts, that it's not possible to fence the necklace in Europe because it's too famous. It's too famous, yeah. Which is a nice detail. And the other thing I'm appreciating is that the episode adaptations add in a lot of, some red herring clues, but a lot of legitimate clues because they just need to flesh out the story. And the character who was the valet in the short story is now a chauffeur as you mentioned and he's a much bigger character and the first time we see him he has to dress up as this American named Jack Worthing who has this ridiculous elephant cane and oh my god it's awesome it's pretty <laughs> awesome we get lots of close-ups of, of that elephant cane and he has to take the room that's next to the Opelson's room obviously so that he and the chambermaid can affect their plan and Poirot is immediately suspicious of him because part of his I don't really understand why but part of the disguise as Mr. Worthing is that he has a limp and his room is on the first floor which of course in the UK means it's up one flight of stairs and he chooses to take the stairs rather than an open waiting elevator right next to him so Poirot realizes that the person who's limping must actually not really need to limp so why is he limping for no reason there's a ridiculous clue where he remembers that Jack Worthing is a character in The Importance of Being Earnest, so I guess the chauffeur just took a name from The Importance of Being Earnest, it's and kudos so to Poirot for it. That's just, that, that one was a bit much. Mademoiselle, it was you who told to me the title of the play, The Importance of Being Earnest. And there is in that play a character that is very well known, who is called Jack Worthing. César. And it was then that I saw the light. And also, what was a bit much? Just to poke a little hole 
in these additional clues is that there's a whole sequence in which Mr. Worthing is at a horse race. It's a racist, yeah. And he stuffs something into the pocket of the writer of the play. The, um, the, like, sort of statin envelope that the, um pearls would have been stored in yeah in the jewelry box right so he stuffs the container for the pearls into the writer of the play's pocket and we see this happening but we never see his face because it hasn't been revealed that mr worthing no we just keep seeing the elephant can but why would he have to dress up as mr worthing to do that he didn't have to do that that was that was for the audience that was not actually in reality even if he needed to do that in a crowd he'd do that without the cane and the limp and the mustache. Like, that made no sense uh, that yeah, he was dressing his, up as Mr. Worthing. I think it was mostly just to have the scene at the races, which I guess... Another quasi-action uh, sequence, which they are fond of, and they definitely help to fill out the suspense and the intrigue in, in these episodes. God bless them. I mean, at least this one didn't have a chase. <laughs> a chase down that back alley. That one, that with, one, that one road, that one lane rural with a truck English road. <laughs> For sure. Oh, yeah. the truck's back. It's backing up again. I guess we can't go. Oh, well. No, we, we, we are lacking our rural road in this. However, we did get some really good shots of Brighton. Yes. Um, and I really, really enjoyed Poirot's lap rug. Um, Hastings Hastings forces him to abandon the case and so Poirot in full suit goes down to beach chairs and, and then a great has shot of them from behind in the beach chairs side by side which is it's it's a pretty it's great. classic shot there's a, there is also a weird moment where they're getting ready for dinner or like I think to go to the theater and Hastings helps Poirot on with his jacket and yeah, just, uh-huh. and I was thinking to myself, I don't think that that goes the other way. I don't think Poirot would ever help Hastings on with the jacket, and it, I feel like there's a slight, almost servile something occasionally to their relationship. Oh, just in that Poirot is the more, you know, he's the more successful one. He's obviously the cleverer one. It was, I, it was just, it was a very intimate but moment, but it was curious. But also the intimacy of the dressing. Um, We didn't discuss this in the last um, episode. So in the Adventure of the Egyptian Tomb, there's this gratuitous scene in which they're dressing. Oh, my God. And and Hastings Uh just drops his pants and is wearing boxers and garters that keep up your socks. And he's doing it right in front of Poirot, and Poirot doesn't mind, and they certainly are, are two very intimate men. I don't really know what the commentary on that should be, other than the fact that if you watch these things in a row, especially, it's like, that's more intimate than I probably am with... With pretty much every, Most people. Most people, other than other than a significant other, let's like, be honest. Yeah. I mean, we go back and we talk about this all the time, about the Sherlock and Watson element, and, I mean, Sherlock and Watson obviously have their share of partisans who write plenty of slash fic about them. Mm-hmm. I don't think there are as many Hastings and Poirot slash fic sure. partisans. But at the same time, there is an intimacy there that is a little bit surprising even to rewatch. Yeah, it is. I mean, and it's mainly sweet, obviously. I mean, there's nothing. There's yeah, really, for there's sure. There's really nothing sexual that's meant to be no. read into it. There's two layers of periodness or periodicity to 
watching these adaptations because there's the one layer where it's obviously set in the 30s, but then there's the other layer when it was made. And sometimes it does feel like, oh, right, this was not made in 2016 or 2017. This was made in 1989 or 1993 or whatever. And there's a simplicity and a sweetness to that male-on-male relationship that I just don't think would be... I actually think what what would probably happen if that if it were adapted today is that they would shy away from it more. I don't think they'd go whole hog with it like the Benedict Cumberbatch, Martin Freeman, Sherlock episodes do. I think they would just kind of not be as openly and non-sexually sweet about it, just knowing that everyone would be putting a sexual spin on it. You know? Oh, for sure. I mean, they would they would understand that there is an internet culture that is going to read deeply into these exactly. relationships, which are clearly not there in any way. No, and I mean, but you, you can know, get away with that in 1992. You cannot get away with that now. Right, absolutely. And also, I mean, I think Miss Lemon serves as like a ballast there mm-hmm. um, yeah. because she just constantly is sort of like being the minder in the background. Yeah. yeah. They use Miss Lemon largely in framing of these episodes. Yes. So you get her authority before she sends the boys off, you know? Yeah, it's true. And it's why Pauline Moran was such an inspired choice for the role. She managed manages to inhabit the episode from the edges. Yeah, she does. Her influence is just felt throughout, even though she doesn't actually have that many lines or even that many scenes. But whenever she's there, boy, you, you sense her and you really feel her as a presence throughout the series. Also, I mean, you know, Inspector Jap is mentioned in the short story, so this is not entirely a case of insertion on their part, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but he's a main character. He replaces the inspector in the story. And so, you know, you got, per usual, him sort of also acting as a little bit of a counterweight to the Hastings and Poirot relationship. to be discussing the real life and times and toils and troubles of Agatha Christie as her first marriage to Archibald Christie fell apart and she disappeared for 11 days and just get into what exactly happened there. It's an important enough episode from her life with a lot that has been written and discussed about it that we feel it's worth devoting its own standalone episode to. That will be next week. And then the week after that, just to give listeners a heads up, is The Mystery of the Blue Train. It's a Poirot. I have no recollection of it, so I'm... I don't either. I'm extremely curious. After The Mystery of the Blue Train, we have The Seven Dials Mystery, which is another superintendent battle and bundle Lady Eileen Brent mystery. So that's another breezy thriller and our and, and our listeners will know how much we liked the secret of chimneys the first breezy thriller with battle and bundle a battle bundle <laughs> special and after that is our very first miss marple miss marple which is so 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 exciting it's worth noting also that we've been peppering these novel episodes with, with short stories and all of the short stories that we've been doing thus far were written within about in 1923 yeah and and yeah. there are more of them too there are so many there are about 50 of these borrow short stories that were written in about yeah and, and, and we've been and to be clear i don't think that we have really mentioned this but we have not been doing the 
these necessarily chronologically. We've been doing them in the order that they appear in the first collection yeah. of Poirot short stories. And so... Yeah, we, we kind of you know, regret going, that, to be honest. We, we started yeah. just... We, we did it that way because we were going from the collected works, but the more accurate thing to do probably would have been to read them in the order in which they were first published as individual stories in magazines. So in, we very well may be going backward by about a year after we're done with this collection to the very, very first Poirot short stories, or maybe right. even just give up being absolutely chronological with short stories and go to some of the Tommy and Tuppence stories she did, or Mr. Quinn. I don't know. There are a lot of them. Right. You know. So join us next week, and in the meantime, please check us out on Facebook at facebook.com slash allaboutagatha. You can also follow us on Twitter at allaboutthedame. You can follow us on Instagram at allaboutthedame. And we would always love to hear from you via email at allaboutthedame at gmail.com. As always, please do take a moment to rate and review us on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you are listening to this episode. And thank you to uh, the handful of you who have already done so. It seriously makes us so happy to hear from you and to interact with you and to know that you are listening and appreciating. We will see you next week. Bye. Bye. If you own a vehicle with less than 200,000 miles and have an auto warranty about to expire or no warranty coverage at all, listen up. CarShield has a low-cost, month-to-month vehicle protection plan that covers more parts than ever. Visit carshield.com audio to find out how you could pay almost nothing for covered auto repairs. Drivers who activate this vehicle protection today will also receive free roadside assistance, free towing, and car rental options at no additional cost. Get your free quote today at carshield.com audio. That's carshield.com audio.